how many of you like to clean? Really? I didn't know anybody liked to clean. I really thought nobody would raise their hands there. Okay, so, yeah, yesterday we cleaned out our car, which is kind of a big deal. Um, if you monitored my cleaning behavior, you would probably walk away thinking that I don't know the difference between a clean room and a dirty room. In fact, my cleaning behavior has led to such speculation in my family. And um, it actually, I'll tell you, the, the opposite is true. See, I have this keen ability to notice details like dust on the top of picture frames and socks that just get kicked under the bed. See, I see it all. And it takes a great deal of restraint for me not to clean it all up. See, that's the thing. I would go crazy trying to clean it all up. But every once in a while, you know, it just builds up. I get so frustrated, I can't take it anymore. And I turn to Mr. Clean, I throw on the gloves, I start going crazy. And, and it happened this past Thanksgiving. The kitchen was just a little too, too dirty, and people are coming over, and I, I'd been fed up. I'm done. That's it. It's time to clean house. So I throw on the gloves. I, I almost died from the fumes of all the mixing of chemicals that happened and cleaned under the refrigerator. And I was in the kitchen for like an hour. It was amazing, and our kitchen is so clean right now. It's still clean. But here's the thing. I know what's coming. What's going to happen? It's going to get dirty again, and that's why I hate cleaning, see? And that's, what, that's exactly what we see in this passage. This passage, we're going to see Nehemiah, and he's going to get fed up. He's had it up to here, and he's going to clean house. Okay, we're going to see a side to Nehemiah that we really haven't seen before in this final chapter, Nehemiah chapter 13. And Austin's going to come read it. I want to ask you guys a question as Austin comes and gets ready to read, and that is this. Some we try to practice, and this is a discipleship tool. As we read scripture, there's different questions we'll ask ourselves as we read it. And um, yeah, go for it. Uh, and the question I want you to ask yourself as you listen to the scripture and as you read it up here on the screen or, or on your, in your Bible is this, what in this passage reminds me of Christ? How do we get to Christ in this passage? Where does the gospel show up? A simple way of asking that question is, how does this passage remind me of the ministry of Christ? So let's read it through that lens, and then uh, I'm going to come back up and talk for a few minutes. Check, check. Good morning, everyone. How you guys doing? Cool. All right, pray with me before we read the the word of God. Say a prayer with me. Heavenly Father, you are good. You made yourself known to us. Um, you gave us your word, and then you became the living embodiment of that word. And you sympathize with our weakness. Um, you died to save us. And so let us keep that in mind as we listen to the word. We will give an account one day for how we receive this, Lord. So let that be a day of rejoicing and not something that needed to be nailed to the cross. Help us, Lord, as we read this, as we... Um, here, Vince, this morning, I pray there that you would be glorified and that we would be blessed. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Nehemiah 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. 
for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of the grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment of the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to each his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed the treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for this service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also lived in that city, who lived in that city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. 
From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Amen. Amen. Give Austin a hand. Thanks, Austin. Boy, can read. Dude, talk about drama, huh? <laughs> Nehemiah goes berserk. This is crazy. Most scholars say this is like 12 to 20 years after the last chapter that Tom went over so well last week. And we know what's happened so far in the story. You know, Nehemiah gets the news as he's back in Babylon that Israel has gone back from exile and they're in a city, but they have no walls. He runs back. The first half of the book is them rebuilding these walls, and God gives them grace, and God gives them favor. It's impossible, this task that they have. Impossible. There's no way it should happen. Yet God gives them favor and it happens. And then the second half of the book, they, they open the Bible, the scriptures, for the first time in like 70 years. And they fall down on their faces and they weep when they see God's provision and how many times he's provided and they still turn their back on him. And then they repent and he provides and they turn their back on him. And they fall down. And remember what the elders said? No, 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 guys. Don't weep right now. Don't cry. First, we're going to celebrate the goodness of our God. And they take two and a half weeks and they party. And they celebrate this feast of tabernacles. And then they come back and they repent in light of God's grace. And they, they confront the brokenness in themselves. And they promise, they covenant with God. They say, look, we're going to honor you in these main areas of our life that we haven't been before. 
We're going to start to honor you like we never have by putting you first. We're going to keep your commands. We're going to honor you by having a pure temple. And we're going to worship. And we're going to bring in the tithes and the offerings. It's going to be awesome. Our relationship with you is going to be like never before. And we swear we're not going to marry anybody outside of Israel that worships false god. We're going to have a pure community that honors you. And you know what else we're going to do? We're going to honor you with the Sabbath. Because what we tend to do is we get so busy and we feel like we have to compete with all the other nations and make as much gross domestic product as them. So we keep working on the Sabbath and we're not trusting you. So we're going to start trusting you and be on mission to the nations because they're going to see our trust in you and that you're our provider. It's going to honor you. So they commit to that. They have this revival. And they're like, yes, we're going for it in God. Just like the camp kid. Anybody ever been there? I'm going for it. I'm burning my CDs. Because that's how my voice sounded at 14. Right? And, and that's, that's exactly what they do. And 12 to 20 years later, Nehemiah comes back. What the heck happened? It's the exact opposite. Who are these people that are doing the exact opposite of what they said? It should be this, like, the stage is set for something big. The stage is set for Israel to finally realize their destiny as God's people. And yet he walks in, and you would think none of that had ever happened. The temple is desecrated. The marriages are defiled. The community, it's gone. And they're not even honoring the Sabbath. Like, there's no difference between Israel and the nations around them. And if you're like me, you might read that and say, I kind of get why Nehemiah went berserk. They just repented from this pattern. And it's just a few years later, and it's like it never happened. What is going on? And here's, here's the deal. I have desires for you and for us today as a church. I want to see you living a covenant life of grace with God. I want to see our community thriving and enjoying renewal that they had in their community for a moment. And I want to see our city impacted by a group of people who live like this thing is real. But it's not up to me. There's, there's other forces at work. There's an enemy that does not want God's plan to go forward in your life, at New City Church, or in San Diego. You guys know that? Yeah, Jesus talked about him, right? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life. And you might have it more abundantly. The enemy wants to distort your walk with God. Right here. The enemy wants to distort your walk with God, your communion. The enemy wants to destroy community. Right here, what we have going on. And the enemy wants to distract you totally from your mission that God has for your life. The up the in and the out of your life, every direction. This multi-dimensional abundant life that Jesus has for you, the enemy wants to take that from you. And, and so today we're going to talk about that, and we're going to see what happens when those three areas get off track. Is that all right? So first, up. The enemy wants to distort your walk with God and get you worshiping other things. We see the temple is desecrated. They stopped worshiping God. They began to move other things. It, literally, they had stopped collecting the offerings. So they had a bunch of empty space in the temple. 
So they moved a bunch of other stuff in, including Tobiah. You guys remember him? Tobiah, the guy who was trying to kill Israel when they didn't have a wall. And they moved the enemy of God from out there and into God's temple. Talk about a metaphor of the people's hearts. And they stop worshiping. They stop giving. The Levites don't have anything to do, so they just go get busy working and making money for themselves and whatever businesses they had. And this storehouse that was reserved for God was turned into a vacation home, a, a delightful summer cottage for Tobiah. Right? Instead of giving to God, they started giving to themselves. They wanted a one-way relationship with God where he serves them and they serve themselves. And they traded communion with the living God for consumerism. Consumerism. And let's be honest. I think if we're honest and we look at our lives, we've all done this. I know I have. There's probably ways in which I've done this this week. Right? Without communion, we struggle with types of consumerism. It's all about worship. Our lives are always worshiping, but at times it becomes us we're worshiping. We take the sacred things of God and make it profane, and we take our stuff, the stuff of our life that we want, and we move it into the temple. We move it into the places where God's stuff is supposed to dwell. Our hearts get cluttered with all kinds of stuff, and worship for God stops. We make room for the enemy to set up and take up residence in our lives. We let the enemy loose in our lives, in our marriages, in our finances, places he ought not to be. And we let him get comfortable there. He props up in God's recliner with his feet up. He's eating God's food out of the fridge. You guys get the picture? <laughs> Telling us how to prioritize our time and finances and we go from pouring out our lives for God to compiling and stockpiling around the lives we think we want and we let the enemy in. It's kind of like the movie Cape Fear. Anybody see Cape Fear? You remember that? Cape Fear, Robert De Niro in his most weird role ever. Um, but he's this escaped conflict, uh, convict and the, he's the antagonist in the story and the protagonist is the guy who had put him away, the district attorney. But when he escapes, he comes back for the district attorney, and he starts lurking around, right? And all of a sudden, their dog winds up dead. And then, and then the dad sees the, like, 16-year-old daughter hanging out with the guy. And she starts getting seduced by this guy. And you're, like, watching the movie, and you can kind of sympathize with the daughter, but at the same time, you're like, what are you doing? You're letting the enemy into your home. You're giving him this, like, this is not going to go well. For you and your family. But the daughter's like, eh, he gives me the attention that I need. He gives me something I need. And if we're not careful, we do the same thing. We let the enemy in because we think that he's got something we need. But today, it is time to clean house. How's that sound? Look at Nehemiah's response. He kicks out Tobiah. He cleanses the temple. And he restores the offering. We see, we see this side of Nehemiah that we've not seen before. It's like what the prophet said in Psalm, For the zeal of your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It, it, this, this passage really reminds me of what Jeff Garner told us 
stood up here two weeks ago and said, guys, what we need more than anything is to empty out our lives so that God can fill it up with what he wants. We need to get some of this stuff out of our lives, out of our hearts, our priorities, our way of looking at things, the consumeristic mentality that we, that we bring to God. We need to empty ourselves of that and let God kind of move in and take up residence in our heart and start rearranging, re, reprioritizing our heart, you know, redecorating a little bit. God's a better decorator than you are. You might watch a lot of Martha Stewart, but God can decorate better than you can, and he knows exactly where everything should be in your heart. And the thing that stands in the way of that, the thing that stands away in, in the way of a personal revival where God can come in and change your life radically and give you the life you're longing for is us holding on to our version of the story. Us holding on to what we want. Us saying, no, you can't take that part out of my heart. You can't clean that part up. I'm not ready yet. But when we surrender to God, he can do so much with it. Amen? Yes. Yeah, one of the ways that Paul says this in the New Testament in Romans 12.1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. One of my mentors used to say, you know what the problem is with a living sacrifice? They're always trying to climb off the altar. Right? And that's like a picture of my spiritual life in so many ways. Like, yeah, God, if you get me off this roller coaster, I will go to China. I will do whatever. Like, if you can break this habit in my life, I will do anything for you. I'm yours. Have your way, God. And then I get off the roller coaster, and it's like, yeah, but China, China is far, and I'm young. You know, maybe, maybe that's not really what God wants for me. And we start second-guessing, and we change our minds, and we just go back to the way we always were. God loves you. He wants your temple clear. So nothing is in the way of his relationship with you. Nothing is coming between you. It's time to clean house today with you and God. The second place is time to clean house is in this community. Because the enemy of your soul wants you to get in relationships, get your relationships out of whack, and get you living in false or unhealthy community. That's the second thing we see. We see marriage is defiled. God wants this holy, pure, godly family that looks like him. And he, hasn't he said this over and over? Over and over. And didn't they commit to this? They committed, we are going to honor you with our family. They had this revival, and with, with tears in their eyes and conviction in their heart, they swore, never again. And now here they are, like Julia Roberts, sleeping with the enemy. Not caring about the community covenant that they'd re recommitted to. They're not caring about the community witness that God had called them to be among the nations. And they're not caring about the community impact that this sin is going to have on generations. They're not caring about community. They, they've traded community for individualism. My wants, my needs, my way. Israelites are, are buying the lie that somehow God's way is restrictive and oppressive, that somehow it, it diminishes their existence instead of addressing the lie. That, it's the same lie. It's been, around, it's been around forever since it's the first lie that the serpent told Eve. 
God's way is oppressive. God, God's way is going to give you the life you don't want. You want your way. Your way is going to be as best. You can be as a God if you'll just eat this fruit. And if they could only see the truth, man, that the way they're living is opposed to God, that's, that's what's deteriorating their lives, and that's what's destroying their community. And God's way would lead to love and the relationships their hearts long for. So we see Nehemiah once again calmly walk in and just have a sit down. Say, hey guys, I don't think we're living the way God wants us to. That's what he does, right? In the text? No, <laughs> what does he do? He marches in, he starts yelling like with passion at the guys who have dishonored God. And after they swore never to enter into these pagan relationships again, here they are. He jumps in and he actually, it says he, he beat them and pulled their hair out. That would be an awkward Sunday morning. <laughs> what in the world has gotten into Nehemiah? Whoa, Nehemiah, they just fell in love. What's the big deal? Isn't God love? God's love. They just loved him. Like, come on, Nehemiah. But we see something deeper as we read in. It says the kids can't even speak their native tongue. Like, the problem here is that the community is being destroyed. The community is falling apart. It's losing its identity. They won't be able to pass on the law of God, the ways of God to the next generation because their kids won't even speak the language. They aren't discipling one another. They aren't prioritizing God and his ways in the community. Instead, they're just content to let everything slide. And we do the same thing all the time. Without godly community, we struggle with individualism. It's, it's, it's about desire for others, but it's about what we get from them, not what we can give to them. In other words, people become a means to an end. Um, anybody like philosophy? Cool, cool. Uh, There's a philosopher named Immanuel Kant. Um, awesome awesome guy. One of his main philosophies is about morality, um, and I, I love Kant because uh, it, this, this philosophy is called the categorical imperative, and it states this, that the highest form of immorality is what? He says the highest form of immorality is to use another person merely as a means to an end, and that people must in all circumstances be treated as ends in themselves. Do you see what he's saying there? We do this all the time. We, as just in the human race, we use people to get what we want. Right? I need this. I need a job. I need money, sex, whatever it is. And we use somebody to get something else. That person becomes a means to some other end. And what Kant is saying in this philosophy is that, and this lines up with Scripture so well, is that God is calling us to live our lives for people as the end, in themselves. To love people just for who they are, not for what we can get from them. And we do this all the time. That's exactly what Israel's doing. We even do it in the church when we allow our expectations. Expectations, they can become a bad word, man. Expectations of, of other people, our expectations of church life, our expectations of community life, we allow that to crush the reality that God is at work in. And we're never happy, we're never pleased because of our expectations, because we're looking to get something from 
people or the church or even God. And everybody around us just becomes a means to an end. Are you guys tracking? And what, what, what often ends up happening is we just keep doing this. We just keep doing it until we finally get what we want or until we've totally crushed that community or that person, then we just move on. We have to clean house today because God wants to do something in our relationships, in our church, in our family, at New City, in our gospel community. God wants to use you to point my heart to Jesus. God wants to use you to love one another. Like, look around the room real quick. See these faces here? This is the church, not the building we're in, not the service we're in, the people. Some good-looking faces here. Look at those smiles. God has called you to give your life to love those people. Think about that. God wants to do something here in this church. Um, imagine if we actually lived out the one another's of Scripture. Has, has anybody read through the one another's in the New Testament? There's, here's a few short of them, a uh, short list. We love one another. We serve one another. Forgive one another. Honoring one another. Praying for one another. Encouraging one another. Sacrificing for one another. Leading and being led by one another. Living our lives in community with one another. On and on. There's 59 of them in the New Testament. Speak the truth. As Ephesians 4 says, to speak the truth in love to one another. To build up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. God wants to use you in this community. This community needs you. And the thing that gets in the way is our individualism. Placing ourselves in the center. Using every, everyone, including God, as a means to our own desires instead of our desires being for others and for God. Let me ask you a question to meditate on for a second. How are you laying down, how are you laying down the almighty me, myself, and I in favor of we, ourselves, and us? Is your life, is my life matching up with Christ's command to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself? God loves you. He wants your relationships pure and centered on Him because He wants you to have healthy, lasting relationships that bring lasting joy and fruitfulness into your life and don't distract you, but instead encourage you in your identity and help mature you and grow you into the life He has for you. It's time to kick the enemy out of our community and honor God with our relationships. You guys agree? Yeah. Lastly, out. The enemy wants to get your mission mixed up, ruin your testimony to the world around you, and get you living on their terms instead of being a countercultural people. See, the next thing we see is the Sabbath is dishonored. Instead of honoring God by resting in the Sabbath, they get caught up in trying to get ahead. All the other nations are going to get stronger than us. They're going to get way more money than us because they have an extra day to work and to make products. We have to keep up, guys. We have to keep up. We don't have time to, to take a day off. We, do, we don't have extra money to give to the temple. Guys, we got to get ahead. We're a new city. 
come on, we got, we got to really compete here on the market. And they started looking just like the nations around them because they're not trusting in God anymore. They started trusting in the almighty dollar instead of in God as provider. And they stopped giving back to God. They stopped giving the Sabbath to God. They traded their missional faith in God for materialism. And Nehemiah responds by scolding the officials. He kicks out. I I love this part where he walks up to the foreigners and he's like, out. Get out. And they're like, okay, well, we'll just camp outside the gate. He goes, look, look, if I see you in the city on the Sabbath again, I will lay hands on you. Which is a really nice way of saying you don't want to be here on the Sabbath, right? I'm going to... And what's, what's really cool is it says that after that time, they never came back on the Sabbath. They were like, Nehemiah is crazy. I saw fire in his eyes. It's not going to be good news for us. And here's the deal. Without God's commission, we're going to struggle with things like materialism. Because we're not living for something bigger than ourselves. We're living for us. It's about stuff, but instead of opening up our hands and letting go and trusting God in service to others, what happens is we clench our fist and we refuse to trust God by giving back part of our resources. We work our Sabbath. We, We use the resources God has placed in our hands to buy temporary treasures for ourselves instead of eternal treasures for God. And we end up looking just like the rest of the world. And what we miss is that God calls us to trust Him and join in His mission. Christopher Wright says this. I love this. He says, God's mission is God's people living in God's ways in the sight of the nations. One of the greatest parts of the Sabbath was the testimony to the surrounding nations of God's provision and faithfulness. Hey, we can take a day off and rest and God's still going to provide. It's missional, and everybody around can see. John MacArthur says it this way in his book on evangelism. He says this, The law was so glorious that if Israel kept it, the nations of the world would hear about it and be astonished. The dietary laws, Sabbath laws, land laws, circumcision, even the laws banning idolatry all intentionally differentiated Israel from its neighbor for the purpose of what? Evangelism. See, because God always asks for part. Here's seven days. Give me one. Here's $100. Give me 10. I'm giving you all these resources. I'm giving you time, money, energy, all these things. Will you trust me with part of it? Do you trust me? Are we in a two-way relationship? Or will will you turn to me proactively and trust Or will you only turn to me when times get tough? When God asks you to honor him with part of what he's given you, it not only displays your trust in God to God, but to everyone else around you. It's mission. It's demonstrating the gospel with our lives so we are constantly confronted with opportunities to declare it with our mouths. Today we have to clean house because God wants to use us to display his loving grace to a hurting world. 
And he does that through his people as they display his character. That's what Peter says, right? 1 Peter 2.12, that we live lives, such good lives among unbelievers, that if they speak evil of us, they still cannot deny our good works and begin to glorify our Father. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew? He said, you're the salt of the earth. What else did he say? You're the light of the world. And then he said, a city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. Let me ask you a couple of questions for your personal application. In what ways is your life countercultural? When you look, especially look at Christmas season. That's a real great opportunity to ask these questions. How is your spending countercultural? How do you spend your time? Is that countercultural? How do you relate to other people? Your husband, your wife, your friends, your family, kids. What are you doing in your life that raises questions with your neighbors and family and coworkers? What are you doing with your life that demands a gospel explanation? See, God loves you. He wants your mission in life to add value to you, not distract value and take value from you. He wants your mission in life to add value to the world around you. And the way he does this is by empowering you to display him in his ways to the world. So it's time to glean house today because the distorted flat life is not what you were meant for. I want to see you guys and myself, our church, experiencing the abundant life that Jesus came to bring. Jesus came bringing this vibrant, multi-dimensional, adventurous life. And so many times we settle for other things. Like we could have a life of communion with Him, but oftentimes we, get, we, get, we let that get robbed from us by taking a consumeristic approach to God that's all about me. We could have a community with His family that's beautiful. That is exactly what we're yearning for in our relationships. But oftentimes our individualistic approach to His family gets in the way. And we could have a mission greater than our lives that we gladly, willingly lay our lives down for because it's so grand and so amazing. But oftentimes our materialistic motives and our own personal missions get in the way. Instead of trusting God and displaying Him to the world, we trust in ourselves, we trust in other people, we trust in the Almighty Dollar to be the provider of our life. And I know that as you look at that, you're like, that's a lot of cleaning. When I look at my life, I'm like, man, that is too much to do. That's a lot. That's not spring cleaning. That's like spring and winter cleaning combined. That's heavy-duty stuff. It's time to go down to storage, get the heavy-duty chemicals, get the special gloves out. I don't know how you're feeling right now. Maybe you feel motivated. Maybe you feel demotivated, overwhelmed. This is heavy stuff. And when we look at Nehemiah, we might get crushed under the weight of it all, but I guess, I guess what we should do is just start, it's a big project, just start the way, you know, the way you would eat an elephant, one bite at a time, right? So what's the first thing we should start working on here to like pick ourselves up and really fix ourselves? Because that's what we're called to do, right? Just like really get our morality in check and work really hard to prove ourselves to God. 
No? Thank you, Peter. <laughs> I saw some confused faces there for a second. I'm like, are we? <laughs> He's got the mic. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so today, I want to I wrap this up. And I want to ask you guys to give the altar call. Something a little different. We're going to turn it around on you. When we read through this text, because we've got to get to the gospel here. This is bad news if we get left here. Because we're not going to be able to do this on our own. It's going to crush us. We're just going to beat ourselves up. Why can't I get good enough? I, I repent. I'm the camp kid. I clean the house and it gets all dirty again. I'm so sick of this. So what's the good news here? I'm going to ask that question. What's the gospel here? And I'm going to ask it specifically. How do we get to Christ in this text? I'm just going to open that up for you to think about. As we read through the text, what reminded you of Jesus? As you've listened to this sermon, where did the gospel stand out to you? Because that, that's our job is to apply the gospel to our own hearts first and lives. So I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're going to open this up for discussion. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just illuminate our hearts, shine a gospel light in there, and help us to see how your truth, the good news of your word, applies to this today because we need hope today in this christmas season we need hope we can't clean ourselves up we're not good enough and even if nehemiah came in and drove out all the things in our life they'd be back in a couple weeks we need you to change our hearts how do we get to the good news of the gospel the day that changes us in jesus name amen Now for that awkward moment for the first one to go. How did this text remind you of Christ? Mm. Yeah. That's beautiful, Katie. Yeah, so Jesus is our rescuer. He's our rescuer. And, and much like baptism washes us and cleanses us one time and for all because it's identifying. It's a reminder of Christ's work for us, right? Are you, let me ask you guys a question. Here's a deep theological question. When you sin, have you lost your salvation? When you fall and mess up again, did you somehow get separated from God and he's written you off, crossed your name? He's like, he's like got a pencil with the Lamb's Book of Life up in heaven and he's like, oh, sin, erase it. Wait for him to repent. Okay, they repented. Write their name back in. 
shoot, they sinned again. Is that what God is doing? When you were baptized, were you washed fully once and for all? Amen. That's good news. So when we're talking about cleaning, we're not talking about getting ourselves perfect for God to somehow accept us. We're already accepted. It's so good. We're already washed. We're already cleansed. And now we're talking about the Holy Spirit doing a work in our lives and empowering us to start living more in alignment with Jesus Christ. Start walking closer in relationship with Him. To honor Him more with our lives. Not that we earn something by it, but because we've already been given everything. It's been earned for us. Amen. Thank you, Katie. Yeah. 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 So the rescuer comes very differently than Nehemiah. He doesn't come to like destroy our lives and beat us up and pull our hair out, but he comes and his hair was pulled out and he was beat up and he was destroyed so that we could have reconciliation with God. Amen. It's a beautiful picture. I get what else? Where else do you see Christ in the story? Wow, yeah, that's great. We'll, we'll wrap it with that one. That's, that's so good. We see Jesus. For the, I'm saying this for the recording, but also for those that didn't hear. We see Jesus coming, and like Nehemiah, marching toward the temple. And Jesus, meek and mild, becomes Jesus mean and wild. And he goes crazy, just like Nehemiah. And he drives out the money changers. Why? The people of that day are using religion for their own personal gain. And they're barring the way for people to come in and sacrifice and worship, especially those that may not have enough. All for personal profit. And Jesus says, my father's house is a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. And he drives the things that are not supposed to be in the temple out. And 
Yeah, that's very much like what Nehemiah does. And Jesus is doing that. I think Jesus is riding toward your heart, the, your temple today, so to speak, to lovingly, lovingly drive out the things that would diminish your life, that come between you and God. And we see the ultimate, the ultimate act, like Brian was saying, where Jesus Christ comes and he's nailed to a cross. And as his flesh is torn, and his body is ripped, and he says, it is finished, what happens back at the temple? The curtain is ripped. And it's like God is saying, there's access now, once and for all, to everyone, into my holy presence. And from that time on, for the first time ever in history, the Holy Spirit was able to come and dwell in sinful, broken human beings. The Holy Spirit moved on people's hearts and it moved within people, but it never filled people. The eschatological Holy Spirit. And now you've got the Spirit in you, connecting you with God, even in moments of brokenness, guiding your heart back toward Jesus. Helping you do the impossible task of cleaning out the temple. Helping you do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do, changing the structures of your heart. So you can have hope today. Because Jesus Christ did the work for you, and now the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you doing a work. So the only thing left to do today is this. Are you ready to repent and believe? Are you ready to recommit? Are you ready to come down here and remember with the blood and the bread the sacrifice that Jesus has done for you and say, I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm ready to surrender every part of my life to you. I'm ready to pour myself out and let you fill me up. I'm ready to put others and you first in my life and have the community that you called me to. I'm ready to live for your mission and not my own. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to ask you guys to come on down in smaller groups today so you have a little time to really repent and confess with each other and allow the Holy Spirit to heal your hearts. Amen? Jesus, thank you so much for this time together as a family to gather around your word. Thank you that even texts written in the modern age of 444 B.C. still speak to our lives today, still convict our hearts because your spirit is here speaking to us. And I pray that you would have your way in the next few moments as we gather together and worship you and turn our hearts toward you and turn our eyes upon Jesus, that we would find freedom in the gospel that we would find joy in the work of the Spirit in our lives, and that we'd find hope because we are not alone in this process with this, this enormous task of cleansing house. But we have you. We're, we're just participating in your work for us. We're so thankful. Have your way, God. In Jesus' name, amen.